Well, I think we are all family here this morning, but just in case there's anyone here who doesn't know me, my name is Dave, and I want to take a moment to welcome you to our family gathering. Over the past few months, we have been going through a sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which was his master class on life in the church. Now, if you were to ask any number of people, what is the church? You would probably get a variety of answers. For some people, the church may be a denomination like Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian. Others may think of the church as a location such as a building with a steeple, cathedral ceilings and stained glass windows. A few may actually think of the church as a group of people with a common faith. So many answers to the question exist. But if you, one thing that we see throughout the storyline of scripture and church history is that the church is a, is a community of messy people who, in spite of their mess, or maybe even because of their mess, and because of the gospel, they show off the beauty of God's grace through their life together. The church in Ephesus was no exception. Now, the city of Ephesus was a port city in Asia Minor. And because it was a port city, it was an important trade center. It was also home to the Temple of Artemis and the seat of of an oriental fertility cult. And much of their trade centered around that particular cult. Paul spent three years there on his third missionary journey. And during his stay there, Acts 19 tells us that they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So Ephesus was a messy city, and the church in Ephesus was a messy church. But in the midst of that messiness, there still was beauty. Jesus said in Revelation, Jesus himself said in Revelation 3, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Paul's letter to the Ephesians could be divided into two parts. The first half of the letter lays out the believer's position in Christ, along with all the blessings and the privileges appertaining to that position. Adoption, acceptance, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, inheritance, the seal of the Holy Spirit, life, grace, and citizenship. In the second half of the letter, Paul explains the responsibilities 
that we have as believers in accordance with our position in Christ. And at this point, I have to say that I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Bart for laying this out as beautifully as he did over the past couple of weeks. As as Bart mentioned over the last couple of Sundays, Ephesians 5, 1 up through 6, 9 is really all one message. Bart gave you parts 1 and 2. I'm just kind of segueing into what he has already laid out, and I'm giving you part 3. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul tells us to be imitators of God and to walk in love. And then he spends the rest of chapter 5 in the first nine verses of chapter 6 laying out what that means. And as imitators of God, believers are to be filled with the Spirit, as it says in chapter 5, verse 18. Being filled with the Spirit entails addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another, and here's the key phrase, out of reverence for Christ. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, make, singing and making melody, giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ are all attributes of being filled with the Spirit. Each person has a specific role, both within the immediate family and in the family of faith. And believers reverence Christ by submitting to one another in accordance to the responsibilities that are associated with their respective roles. And Paul lays out those roles and, and explains the responsibilities associated with them in chapters, chapter 5, verses 22, verse 22, up through chapter 6, verse 9. Now, Bart mentioned last week that wives are to submit to their husbands, and Bart's not here this morning. I, I, I hope he's all right. Okay, seriously. <laughs> no. In each instance, Paul ties the responsibility in some way to reverence for Christ. And, and if we read these verses in isolation, we not only run the risk of misconstruing them, and that is a huge risk, but we cut ourselves off from the only source of power that we have for fulfilling those responsibilities, and that is being filled with the Spirit. Wives reverence Christ by deferring to their husbands as to the Lord. And how do they accomplish this? By being filled with the Spirit. Husbands reverence Christ by loving their wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. How does he do it? By being filled with the Spirit. And this morning we're going to look at the responsibilities of fathers, of children, fathers, slaves, and masters. And our text for this morning is in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 9. So if you have, have your Bible turned there, and if not, 
Uh, you can take one of the Bibles from underneath the chair in front of you and turn to page 816, and that will be our text for this morning. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul addresses the role of children and lays out the responsibilities of children. Children reverence Christ by obeying their parents, and notice how he says this, in the Lord, for this is right. In Colossians 3.20, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, Paul obviously was not commanding children to obey instructions that are sinful or ridiculous. I mean, if, if there are any kids here and your parents tell you to go stand in the middle of Evesham Road, I hope you, I hope you don't do it. You, you should report them to Dyfus, actually, but... But but here Paul qualifies his exhortation with the phrase in the Lord. And I like the way Robert Plummer puts this. He says, what Paul seems to have been saying was that obedience to parents is always informed by the Lordship of Christ. And that bowing one's will to parents is ultimately an expression of bowing one's knee to the Lord. Paul left no room for ambiguity. Obeying one's parents is right. Now, by quoting the fourth commandment, Paul reminded his readers that this obedience stands in continuity with the, with the expectations for families, even in the Old Testament, but with one little caveat here. Empowered by God's Spirit, New Testament believers can fulfill what was previously impossible. Believing children can honor their parents and experience both eternal and temporal blessings. Now in verse 4, Paul gives instructions to fathers. So fathers reverence Christ not by exasperate, by not exasperating their children, but by bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are not to exasperate their children. Now, the the ESV and the the NASB both say, do not provoke your children to anger. I still kind of like the way that the old King James puts it. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Now, I broke my teeth on the King James, and I know that when I was a kid, my dad had me memorize these verses. 
I kind of took it, well, he had me memorize verses 1 through 3 anyway. I kind of took it upon myself to memorize verse 4. He didn't actually ask me to memorize that one. I'm not really sure why, but anyway. Or maybe the way David Banner would have put it, parents, don't make your children angry. You wouldn't like them when they're angry. Yeah, some of you are old enough to get that reference. Now, this obviously doesn't mean that parents should not exercise authority over their children. And sometimes when you exercise authority over your children, they're going to get angry, especially when they get to be teenagers and it suddenly dawns on them that they know more than you do. But what... That's just the nature of the beast. But what it does mean, however, is that parents should not antagonize their children or treat their children in ways that cause their children to sin. Paul says instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And now again, notice how Paul ties this back to Christ with the phrase, in the Lord, or of the Lord rather. Throughout his New Testament letters, Paul admonished fathers to train and disciple their children, and nowhere is this charge laid out more clearly than in this verse. And although Paul did not provide step-by-step instructions for bringing up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, he clearly indicated that Christian fathers should train their children in gospel-centered truths. That's the instruction. As well as providing discipline that is shaped by the character of Jesus. That's the of the Lord part. And while it's worth noting that Paul singled out the father as the one who is primarily and uniquely responsible to God for his children's moral and spiritual care, this does not exclude the mother. Paul's protege, Timothy, was brought up in the faith by his mother and his grandmother. In 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 1.5, and Paul elsewhere instructed older women to train the young women in Titus chapter 2. And so it would not be a stretch to assume that this would include mothers training their daughters. But how do parents bring up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord? By being filled with the Spirit. And then in chapter, I'm sorry, verses 5 through 8, Paul gives instructions to slaves. Now there is a tendency today to take what Paul is talking about here and applying it to our occupations, to employee and employer relationships. And that may certainly be a valid application of the passage, but it would be intellectually dishonest, not to mention cowardly, for me to stand up here and try to say that that's what Paul is talking about here. He's not. Whether we like it or not, and as painful as it may be, he is talking about the relationship between slaves and masters. And I can appreciate how sensitive and even painful that may be for some people, especially African Americans who may be descended from slaves. But let's look at Paul's perspective on slavery. Now, a lot of people are troubled by the fact that Paul did not denounce slavery or call for an end to the institution. 
And I can appreciate that because I too have been troubled by it. Why did not Paul call for an end to such a heinous institution? Well, there are three things that we need to keep in mind here. First of all, neither Paul nor any other Christian had the political wherewithal to accomplish such an aim. Christianity was not even a legally recognized religion in the Roman Empire during the first century. And so any public campaign by Christians to, you know, to end slavery would have been futile. Secondly, we also need to keep in mind that while Paul did not explicitly repudiate slavery, he did not endorse it either. In fact, on the contrary, Paul said that if slaves, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul said that if slaves could gain their freedom, they should do so. So he clearly preferred freedom over slavery. Paul's perspective on slavery stands in direct contrast to his view on marriage and the family. Paul grounds the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children in the created order, seeing them as fitting and good part of life in this world. Nowhere, on the other hand, how does Paul root the institution of slavery in the created order? In fact, if nowhere, there is nothing in Genesis 1 and 2 that would suggest that slavery was part of God's intention for human beings. In fact, if you were to argue from the creation account, you should actually come to the opposite conclusion. All human beings are created in the image of God, and no human being has the right to own or enslave a fellow image bearer. As Charlton Heston said in the Ten Commandments, God made men. Men made slaves. And finally, we need to keep in mind as well that slavery was an accepted institution in the Greco-Roman world, and Christians had to interact with the world as it was and not as they wished it to be. And so while neither Paul nor any other New Testament writer may have directly called for an end to slavery, the gospel of Jesus Christ certainly does undermine it. So, given the reality of slavery in the Greco-Roman world, Paul recognized that there were some within the community of faith who either were slaves or owned slaves, and so he tells them to reverence Christ by obeying their masters with respect and fear. Now, other translations besides the NIV translate this as fear and trembling. Their obedience would not be so much out of fear for their earthly masters, but although some earthly masters could be cruel, but out of fear for their heavenly master, who is above both them and their earthly masters. Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul once again ties Submission to reverence for Christ by informing slaves that whatever they do for their earthly masters, they are ultimately doing it for Christ, who will reward them accordingly. How does a slave accomplish this? Come on, you know the answer by now. By being filled with the Spirit. Thank you.
And then in verse 9, he has a word for masters. Now, I'm going to say this. I, if there is any doubt about Paul's opposition to slavery, this verse ought to dispel it. Paul tells masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I actually like the way the NASB puts this. It says, do the same things to them. Because Paul is not merely calling for the humane treatment of slaves, although he is calling at least for that much, but he is, in effect, telling slave masters, everything I've just told you to do, everything I've just told your slaves to do, now I'm telling you to do that as well. Can you imagine Paul? I don't, now as I said, I don't imagine... No, I didn't say this yet. I don't imagine this verse got preached very often in southern churches prior to the Civil War. Imagine Paul walking into an antebellum southern Baptist church and telling slave owners in front of their slaves, no less, to obey their slaves out of fear and reverence or out of fear and trembling. You know the verse in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul says, Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. I think that number might have gone up to six at this point if he had done that. This was revolutionary, and it it turned the social order of things on its head. Now, while realistically I don't think Paul actually expected slave masters to obey their slaves, he did expect them to not abuse their authority. The way Thomas Schreiner puts it, he says, Paul is well aware that those who possess authority are prone to use their social position to oppress those beneath them. Masters must desist from threatening in a domineering and imperious way as if they are the ultimate authority in the lives of slaves. For masters too have the same Lord in heaven, and he is impartial and will judge them if they mistreat their slaves. Thus, masters must do what is right and grant what is fair to their slaves, and like slaves, they are to conduct their work as masters out of reverence for Christ. How would a slave master possibly do this? Thank you, Matthew. Somebody's getting it here. (laughs) So this brings us to our big idea for this morning's passage. Believers reverence Christ by submitting to one another in accordance with the responsibilities given to their respective roles, which they can only do by being filled with the Spirit. Now, I know that's a long sentence, but here is the basic gist of it. Whatever your role is in life, whether you are a wife or husband, a child, a parent, a slave or employee, a master or an employer, whatever your role is, you reverence Christ by fulfilling the responsibilities that are given to your role. How do you do it? By being filled with the Spirit. So what difference does this make for us this morning? 
Well, if there's a teaching here that needs to be learned and followed, it would be that submitting to one another is a complex concept, and it needs to be defined within the context in which Paul is using it. It's not a question of position or power, as it is in Romans 13, where Paul tells believers to submit to the governing authorities, and we should not read hierarchy into the passage. Rather, it is about bearing with one another in love, with all humility and gentleness, and with all patience, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.1. And as he intimates in Philippians 2, 2-4, it is about being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. It's about doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility valuing others above ourselves and not looking to our own interests, but each one looking to the interests of others. If there is a rebuke to be heard and heeded in this passage, it would be that if you are in a position of authority or leadership, whether it's in the home, in the church, or in the workplace, you need to beware of abusing your leadership responsibilities and holding your authority over the heads of those under your charge. There are some people who should never be put in positions of authority because it just goes to their head and they just don't know how to handle it. But even Jesus warned his disciples... In Matthew 10, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No one was in a higher position of authority than Jesus was. And yet Paul says in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if there is a correction to be heard here, it would be this. Paul told believers in Romans 12.3 not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, but to think soberly, according to the measure of faith that God has given them. If you think you can do this in your own strength and your own power, then I'm telling you right now, you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. None of us can do this in our own strength and power. As Bart pointed out last week, submitting to one another, even out of reverence for Christ, is not part of our DNA. It is not part of who we are. Even people who are seemingly passive may still harbor jealousy and resentment. The only way we can do this is by being filled with the Spirit. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Simply by asking. Jesus said, I tell you, 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the one prayer that I can guarantee that God will answer for every one of His children. And in what way does this passage train us to be righteous? We have to go full circle. All the way back to chapter 5, verse, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We need to reject any kind of sexual immorality and all impurity. We need to walk in the light And we need to be filled with the Spirit and let Him give direction to our lives. My hope is that you have discovered over these past few Sundays specific implications for change in your own personal life. And that you will begin to implement those changes if you haven't begun to do so already. How do you need to change? as a result of our study of Ephesians 5, 1 through 6, 9. Have you discovered some area in your own life where this passage calls you to change? Why not take a moment before the Lord to ask Him for the filling of the Holy Spirit and establish a plan for implementing change? Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. Come, sweet Spirit, I pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle Sing it with me. Come, Holy Spirit, we need you. Come, sweet Spirit, we pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle way. Come, Holy Spirit, we do need you. Come, sweet Spirit, we pray. Come in your strength and your power. Come in your own gentle way. Help us to submit to one another out of reverence Christ, because we cannot do it in our own strength and our power. It's just not in us. It's not in our DNA. We can only do it by you filling us. So come, 
Help us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We pray that you would help us to be imitators of God by rejecting all immorality and all impurity, by walking in the light, and by being filled, Holy Spirit, with you, with your presence, your strength, and your power. Pray that you would do this to honor Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.